The How Was This Movie podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to www.patreon.com slash movie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain our goal of keeping this show independent and free of advertising. Well, we clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Put your head between your knees. Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sutler, welcome to Jurassic Park. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen to this show. So I have a question for you. What makes the film Jaws so effective? Now, it can't possibly be the mechanical shark used in the movie. Even 40 years ago, it looked fake. No, what makes Jaws so effective is it's based in some reality. Anyone who goes swimming in the ocean has a chance albeit a slim one, that they could get attacked by a shark. When an audience is watching a film and they're able to place themselves in the character's shoes and ask how would they handle that situation, that's always a sign of a great movie. Now, before 1993, no one ever watched a film about dinosaurs and thought how terrifying would it be to be hunted by a velociraptor or a Tyrannosaurus rex because dinosaurs are extinct and it's a situation we can't identify with. Well, all that changed in the summer of 1993 when a film gave us our very first realistic look at a world we only saw in museums and read about in textbooks. On this episode of How Was This Movie, Jurassic Park. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. Senses are failing all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. In 1981, author Michael Crichton had an idea for a story. What would happen if through reckless science, dinosaurs were brought back to life in present times and exploited for profit in a theme park unlike no other, only to have an act of deliberate sabotage free the dinosaurs and have them wreak havoc on those inside the park? This was going to be a real cautionary tale, and Crichton had the plot outlines and the characters ready to go. He did tons of research on all the dinosaurs that would appear in his story, but what he didn't have was a credible, scientific way to bring dinosaurs back to 
life, and Crichton wouldn't write the book until he found one. Now, this is where entomologist George Perno comes into the picture. In the mid-80s, Perno was studying amber deposits in Europe, and he came across an insect trapped inside the fossilized tree resin. Perno was incredibly intrigued by how perfectly preserved the insect was and shocked to find molecules of DNA from the insect. Perno was able to date this insect back 25 million years. Now, Michael Crichton was fascinated by this discovery and used it as the missing piece for his dinosaur story. In his book, Crichton wrote about a company called Engine, whose scientists were able to extract dinosaur DNA from blood-sucking insects trapped inside amber. Crichton's theory gained serious legitimacy when George Perno found a beetle dated back 125 million years, thus making it possible, in theory, to find dinosaur DNA. Now, I say in theory because dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago, and this was the first proof that you could find a bug older than 65 million. So nine years after the idea first came to Crichton, Jurassic Park was published in 1990 and became a bestseller. Now, a year before the book was released, Crichton was actually having a meeting with Steven Spielberg. They got together to discuss a project that would eventually become television's ER. While they were having those discussions, Crichton told Spielberg about the book that he was writing, and Spielberg was just beyond fascinated by the plausibility that someday dinosaurs could be resurrected via their DNA. What? What? Oh, what's the DNA? Where did you come from? From your blood. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of DNA, the building blocks of life. A DNA strand like me is a blueprint for building a living thing. And sometimes animals that went extinct millions of years ago, like dinosaurs, left their blueprints behind for us to find. We just had to know where to look. A hundred million years ago, there were mosquitoes, just like today. And, just like today, they fed on the blood of animals, even dinosaurs. Sometimes, after biting a dinosaur, the mosquito would land on the branch of a tree and get stuck in the sap. After a long time, the tree sap would get hard and become fossilized, just like a dinosaur bone, preserving the mosquito inside. This fossilized tree sap which we call amber, waited for millions of years with the mosquito inside until Jurassic Park scientists came along. Using sophisticated techniques, they extract the preserved blood from the mosquito and, bingo, dino DNA. Now, a new issue presented itself while I was researching this show. I shared what I was working on with a very close friend of mine. Now, he's doing grad work in paleontology. When I called him to confirm that although it had never been done, it is possible to get dinosaur DNA, he quickly shot me down and told me that it would be impossible, and new science has debunked that theory. Not fully believing or maybe just not coming to grips with it, I looked further into it and found out he was right. I found numerous papers written on the subject, and they all conclude the same outcome. Here's a few paragraphs from Popular Science. DNA is a sturdy molecule. It can hang around for a long time in fossilized plants and animals. To find out just how long, an international team of scientists decided to determine its rate of decay, the length of time it takes half of its bonds to break. First, the scientists extracted and measured the amount of DNA in 158 leg bones of an extinct moa. It's a 12-foot flightless bird that once roamed New Zealand. Next, they used radiocarbon dating to calculate the age of the bones, which ranged from about about 650 to 7,000 years 
years old. With that data, the scientists calculated that the hereditary molecule's half-life was about 521 years. The rate, however, isn't slow enough for humans to take blood from amber-encased mosquitoes and clone dinosaurs like in Jurassic Park. We believe this is the last nail in the coffin of claims that scientists can get DNA from million-year-old fossils, says Morton Allenloft, a scientist from Copenhagen's Natural History Museum who worked on the project. Even in ideal preservation conditions, the scientists calculated that every single DNA bond would be broken at 6.8 million years. The youngest dino fossils are 65 million years old, and because scientists need longer stretches of DNA to replicate it, it is estimated that the oldest usable DNA will actually be 1 to 2 million years old. The record holder right now is DNA found in ice cores at 500,000 years old. Now this caused me to rethink and reshape the episode, and many may find this a bit of a downer as I did, but I felt it was important to include this new information. This doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the film, even though I know I probably won't get to see a real dinosaur in my lifetime. About a year later, the big studios came looking for the rights to Jurassic Park. Now Crichton had some strong terms. No matter what the bid was, he was to receive $1.5 million up front and a percentage of the film's profits, including merchandising tie-ins. Now every studio wanted in and made bids, but it was Universal that secured the rights. And they only had one person in mind to direct this film. You guessed it, Steven Spielberg. Now Spielberg had just wrapped up the film Hook and he was getting ready to start pre-production on what would be considered the most important film he's ever made, Schindler's List. However, Universal head Sid Sheinberg insisted, pleaded, <laughs> that he makes Jurassic Park first. And after that, he would be given all the time he needed to work on Schindler's List. To help put the screenplay together, Universal hired Michael Crichton to write the first draft. And for this service, they paid him $500,000. Now, ultimately, Crichton had to make some changes from the book to the screenplay to fit into a two-hour window. But there were some changes that were made that really wouldn't have affected the running time, and it was more about the actual character arcs. For example, in the film, the lawyer, Gennaro, the one who meets his untimely demise by the T-Rex while trying to hide in a restroom, he is portrayed as a very weak individual in the film. In the book, Gennaro is is one of the main characters, and he's actually a really brave, strong person. In fact, there are references to how muscular he is in the book. And he is actually the first person to volunteer to go into the park with Muldoon, the game warden, to search for Dr. Grant and the kids. And he ultimately survives. Now, there are a couple other differences between the book and the film, and I'll touch on them throughout the episode. Once Crichton finished his first draft of Jurassic Park, the one thing that Spielberg noticed about it was how somber it was in tone. This was a film that had no humor about it. And Spielberg said, if you're going to do a movie featuring dinosaurs in 1993, you had better put a little humor in it. You better put some humor with the characters, something that the audience can connect with. So he enlisted David Cope, fantastic screenplay writer, who went ahead and polished up the dialogue and gave the film a little comic levity, which was absolutely needed after some of the more tense scenes in the film. Now, pre-production for this film would last 25 months. And in that time, a revolution that was started with the abyss in Terminator would come full circle. Now, Spielberg knew that he wanted to use as many life-sized dinosaurs as possible, and he turned to the only person in the world who could pull that off, Stan Winston. Now, Winston and his team built the most realistic animatronic dinosaurs ever seen. But for certain action sequences, Spielberg assumed that he would employ stop-motion photography, an industry standard that's been used for the past 70 years. However, a group from Industrial Light and Magic told Spielberg that they should look at a video that they produced. As Spielberg watched this video, he was amazed by what he saw, the most lifelike computer-generated dinosaurs that he had ever seen. This was a turning point. 
not just for Jurassic Park, but for the future of film as we know it. Spielberg made the decision to go with industrial light and magic, and with that came the end of stop-motion animation in big studio films. The spitter, the velociraptors, the brachiosaur, or the T-Rex. Santa could give them utterly authentic movements far beyond where we were technologically in 1973-74 with Jaws. But how we were going to get the dinosaurs to run, how we were going to get them to even be in the movie and wide shots was always going to be the old-fashioned way through stop-motion animation. The same way that uh, Willis O'Brien made, made King Kong, just taking that little armature on a small maquette and just moving it just a, a millimeter at a time. And Phil Tippett was hired by me to do that because he was the best in the business. The first call I got was from Kathy Kennedy at home. And I just finished working on this big stop-motion project. It was absolutely beat. And Kathy calls up and goes, she's all like perky, goes, Hey, Phil, we got this really cool thing we're going to do with dinosaurs. It's really going to be a lot of fun. And we're like, yeah, really? Okay. <laughs> Fine. And we all started to plan it out as the conventional stop-motion, go-motion, rod puppet, high speed with a little bit of computer graphics. And then one day I got a call from Dennis Muren at ILM, who already had the job of doing Jurassic Park with Phil Tippett. And Dennis said that he thought that he could pull off a full-size dinosaur that would be authentic to the eye. And so he started doing tests. And the first test he did was a whole herd of gallimimus, just the skeletal structure of the gallimimus, running through a still photograph of Hawaii. It was several angles of this. And it was so authentic and smooth, I actually said, well, that's the future. That's the way it's going to be from now on. Filming for Jurassic Park began on August 24th, 1992 in Hawaii. Now, even though the film is set in Costa Rica, Spielberg felt that there would be many hassles associated with filming there. But just days into shooting in Hawaii, the crew experienced a Category 4 hurricane that made a direct hit on the island they were filming. While most of the shooting had to be put on hold due to this hurricane, Spielberg did send a second unit team out to film as much as the hurricane as possible, and they did incorporate it into the movie. Now, most of the principal photography did take place in Hawaii, but there were two key Scenes that just could not be filmed on location. And those were Tyrannosaurus Rex encounter. Maybe it's the power trying to come back on. What is that? Where's the goat? and the kitchen scene involving the raptors. Timmy, what is it? It's a velociraptor. It's inside.
those were filmed on studio backlots. Now, along with the accepted theory that it would be possible to extract dinosaur DNA, Spielberg brought famed paleontologist Jack Horner on as a technical advisor for the film. Horner is considered one of the leading experts on dinosaurs, and he was the first to propose the theory that birds are descended from dinosaurs and that some dinosaurs cared for their young. Horner was also a partial inspiration for the character of Dr. Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill. And look at the half-moon-shaped bones on the wrist. It's not one of these guys learn how to fly. Well, the first person we went to was Jack Horner. Not just to achieve an authenticity, but we wanted a credible resource that could back up several theories that we were sort of expounding. And one was that dinosaurs eventually evolved into birds. And even the word raptor means bird of prey. And that's something that Jack Horner believes in and could defend if necessary. And Jack Horner became our credibility. For the role of Dr. Ellie Sadler, the casting director went with Laura Dern, who is the daughter of Bruce Dern and Diane Ladd. Prior to Jurassic Park, Laura Dern had several smaller roles in films such as Mask, Wild at Heart, and Fat Man and Little Boy. Now, a notable difference in the book with these two characters is that Ellie Sadler is just a grad student working with Dr. Grant, and they are not romantically involved. And it should also be noted that nowhere in the book is it implied that Dr. Grant doesn't like children, as it's presented in the film. Now, Jeff Goldblum was cast as the quote-unquote rock star scientist, Dr. Ian Malcolm, whose impassioned speech about the dangers of unchecked science proves to be more than correct. In the book, however, Malcolm comes across as somewhat weak, and after being mortally wounded, goes on insane rants while being high on morphine, and and you don't hear much from him as the book progresses. Now, one of my favorite characters, the game warden, Robert Muldoon, was played by the late British actor Bob Peck, and his character really did become an audience favorite. They should all be destroyed. (laughs) Robert, Robert Muldoon, my game warden from Kenya. Bit of an alarmist, I'm afraid, but knows more about raptors than anyone. What kind of metabolism do they have? What's their growth rate? They're lethal at eight months, and I do mean lethal. I'm hunting most things that can hunt you, but the way these things move... As fast for a bypass? Cheetah speed. 50, 60 miles per hour if they ever got out in the open. And they're astonishing jumpers. Yes, 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 yes. And that's why we're taking extreme precautions. The viewing area... Do they show intelligence? With the brain cavities... They show extreme intelligence. Even problem-solving intelligence. Especially the big one. We bred eight originally, but when she came in, she took over the pride and killed all but two of the others. That one... When she looks at you, you can see she's working things out. That's why we have to feed them like this. She had them all attacking the fences when the feeders came. The fences are electrified, though, right? That's right, but they never attacked the same place twice. They were testing the fences for weaknesses systematically. They remember... The role of InGen's billionaire CEO, John Hammond, was given to one of the great actor-directors of all time, Lord Richard Attenborough, who sadly passed away just yesterday. Attenborough's body of work encompasses 70 years. He was as well-known behind the camera as he was in front of it. As the director of such films as Bridge Too Far, Cry Freedom, and Chaplin, Attenborough displayed a range unlike most filmmakers. His crowning achievement in filmmaking was 1982's Gandhi, in which Attenborough won two Academy Awards for Best Director and Best Picture. Attenborough also acted in some 78 different roles, always bringing a gravitas to every film. Richard Attenborough retired from acting in 1978 to focus on directing full-time. Because he was such an admirer of Steven Spielberg, he agreed to be in Jurassic Park and have a cameo role in The Lost World. Attenborough was beloved in his native England and around the world. He was 90 years old when he passed away, and his legacy will be far-reaching years to come. More adventurous guests, of course.
Frost can opt for our jungle river cruise or for a close-up look at our majestic... None of these attractions are ready yet, of course, but the park will open with the basic tour you're about to take. And then other rides will come online six or 12 months after that. Absolutely spectacular design, spared no expense. And we can charge anything we want, 2,000 a day, 10,000 a day, and people will pay it. And then there's the merchandise. I can personally... Donald, Donald. This park was not built to cater only for the super-rich. Everyone in the world has the right to enjoy these animals. Sure, they will. What, we'll have a, a coupon day or something? <laughs> Gee, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. Well, thank you, Dr. Malcolm, but I think things are a little bit different than you and I had feared. Yeah, I know, they're a lot worse. Now, wait a second, now, we haven't even... Seen the part no, no, where Donald, 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 let him talk. There's no reason. No, no, I want to hear every viewpoint. I really do. Yeah, yeah. don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well... I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Condors. Condors are on the verge of extinction. And if oh. I was to could not know if I was to create a flock of condors on this island, you wouldn't have anything to say. No, hold on. This isn't this isn't some species that was obliterated by deforestation or or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot, and nature selected them for extinction. I simply don't understand this Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery and, and not act? Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. Well, the question is, how can you know anything about an extinct ecosystem? And therefore, how could you ever assume that you can control it? When you have plants in this building that are poisonous. You pick them because they look good. But these are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. Dr. Grant, if there's one person here who could appreciate what I'm trying to do... The world has just changed so radically, and we're all running to catch up. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. In keeping with the spirit of 
the book versus the movie, the character of John Hammond is actually killed by those tiny little dinosaurs that appear in the first scene of The Lost World. I will say, if you've never read Jurassic Park, it's a very, very interesting book. It is incredibly serious in its tone, and it's lacking any of the humor that this movie has. But it's still a very, very good read. Principal photography wrapped 10 days ahead of schedule. And even though the film wasn't close to being finished, Spielberg was off to Poland to start filming Schindler's List. In the evenings, he would have satellite phone conversations with the Jurassic Park crew. Now, looking back, Spielberg said this was one of the most challenging endeavors he ever attempted, trying to balance the excitement of Jurassic Park with the filming of the solemn story of the Holocaust in Schindler's List. Now, along with the CGI effects, Spielberg was also interested in mixing the sound of the film in 100% digital, and he helped create DTS Digital Cinemas, which spearheaded the 1990s conversion from analog to digital sound in theaters across America. Spielberg also brought in one ace in the hole to help him wrap up post-production on the film, and that, of course, would be George Lucas, who supervised much of the post-work on the film. And in keeping with what was now a tradition for Spielberg films, John Williams was brought in to compose the score. Universal spent an unheard-of amount to promote this film more than $65 million, and it had movie tie-in deals with more than 100 companies. All that paid off as Jurassic Park opened up with a $47 million box office weekend take and would eventually earn $914 million worldwide, making it the highest-grossing film of all time. And it would hold that record for four years until James Cameron's Titanic eclipsed it. Jurassic Park was critically praised by all the critics. It holds a 93% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and I have gone on record many times, including on the That'll Play podcast is saying that if Jurassic Park was released today, as is, no modifications, that that film would hold up and it would probably do better than a lot of films that have been released today. The success of the film brought Crichton's book back on the bestsellers list, and the fans demanded that he write a sequel. At first, Crichton refused, but eventually gave in to the mounting pressure, and in 1995, he published The Lost World. Now, this story focuses on a second island known as Site B where all the real dinosaur testing went on. Now, after the events of the first book, the island is abandoned, and it's assumed that the dinosaurs wouldn't survive more than a week. Well, of course, they were wrong. One major plot point was the inclusion of Dr. Ian Malcolm in the second book. It was strongly inferred that he died in the first book. Steven Spielberg took two years off after making Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. When he was ready for his next film, his choice was to do a sequel to Jurassic Park. Spielberg had in his mind how the story would develop, how the dinosaurs were going to be brought back. In Jurassic Park, the IT guy, Dennis Nearly, steals eight dinosaur embryos and hides them in a retrofitted can of shaving cream, only to be killed by a Dilophosaurus and the can buried in mud. Spielberg had intentionally held the shot of that can being buried in the mud because he knew that if there was going to be a sequel, that can of shaving cream was going to play a major role. It wasn't until he read Crichton's book that he shifted away from that idea and put his focus on Site B. Jeff Goldblum was the only returning character from the first film with the exception of a very small cameo from the two actors who played John Hammond's grandchildren, Lex and Tim, and a quick scene with Richard Attenborough, who sort of just explains why Site B exists. New characters included Juliana Moore, who plays Dr. Sarah Harding, a scientist who is romantically involved with Dr. Malcolm, and travels to Site B by herself to study the dinosaurs and their natural habitat. Vince Vaughn, who just had his first taste of success with the film Swingers, plays photojournalist Nick Van Owen, who is sent to the island to video document the dinosaurs. This isn't hunting behavior, Ian. Not hunting. They're searching. They came for their infants. Let's not disappoint them. 
Let me get his head. Okay. But for my money, the most standout performance in the film goes to the late Pete Possilwaite, who plays big game hunter Roland. He agrees to join Injun in their plan to once again exploit the dinosaurs for profit, but he does this in exchange for a chance to hunt the T-Rex. This is as good a place as any for base camp. That's first priority after we're finished. I want it up and running in 30 minutes. That's half an hour. Understood? Over. Cancel that order. What? Why? This is a game trail, Mr. Ludlow. Carnivores hunt on game trails. Do you want to set up base camp or a buffet? Let's find a new spot, shall we? Over and out. Peter, if you want me to run your little camping trip, there are two conditions. Firstly, I'm in charge, and when I'm not around, Dieter is. All you need to do is sign the checks, tell us we're doing a good job, and open your case of scotch when we have a good day. Second condition, my fee. You can keep it. All I want in exchange for my services is the right to hunt one of the tyrannosaurs. A male. A buck only. How and why are my business. Now, if you don't like either of those two conditions, you're on your own. So go ahead. Set up base camp right here, or in a swamp, or in the middle of a wreck's nest, for all I care. But I've been on too many safaris with rich dentists to listen to any more suicidal ideas. Okay. Okay. For the production of The Lost World, Spielberg again turned to Stan Winston to help with the full-size dinosaurs used in the film. The T-Rex attack scene in Jurassic Park used a full-size puppet. For The Lost World, there was a scene with two Tyrannosaurus Rexes attacking an SUV. So a second life-size Tyrannosaurus Rex needed to be built. But besides that scene, Spielberg chose to predominantly use CGI effects for The Lost World. This presented a lot of challenges for the effects crews, who were tasked with placing many more dinosaurs on the screen than its predecessor. For example, in Jurassic Park, there were 63 digital shots of dinosaurs. In The Lost World, there were several hundred shots used. For the original ending of The Lost World, the survivors from the island are escaping via helicopter when it comes under attack by pterodactyls. This was going to be a pretty impressive scene, including a pterodactyl crashing into the pilot's window, stabbing him through the chest with its beak. Now, there's a reason why this didn't end up on the screen. Steven Spielberg's directing schedule was laid out for the next few years, and he would have to drop one of his filming projects in order to make a third Jurassic Park film. Now, Spielberg always wanted to see a Tyrannosaurus Rex in an American city wreaking havoc. And this would have been a major plot point in the third film if he was going to direct it. Once it was confirmed that he wouldn't be making a second sequel, he rewrote the third act of The Lost World to include the San Diego Tyrannosaurus Rex scene. I called Dave and I said, hey, let's throw out the whole last act and let's just somehow find a way to bring the T-Rex back to America. Let's bring the T-Rex to San Diego, (laughs) a port city comes back on a big cargo container, gets out and starts roaming the streets. So kind of on a whim, we worked that into the story and ended the picture uh, you know, in the U.S. No, no, no. It suddenly is a Godzilla movie, and I just have only dreamed about making one of these as a child. Yeah. As a grown-up, I'm ashamed of myself. The Lost World opened on Memorial Day weekend 1997 and broke box office records for the largest weekend opening gross with $92 million over the four-day holiday weekend, and it reached $100 million in just six days. However, the reception for The Lost World was at best lukewarm, and word of mouth ultimately kept 
kept this film from matching the overall box office take of the original film. The Lost World has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 52%, and that is 40% lower than Jurassic Park. Now, in 2001, a third Jurassic Park film was released. This time, it was Jumanji director Joe Johnston taking up the directing duties. Returning to the role of Dr. Alan Grant was Sam Neill. The film also stars William H. Macy and Taya Leone. The film failed to make an impact with fans of the first Jurassic Park, and it's considered a very forgettable film. That is one big pile of shit. Now, in 2015, Jurassic World will be unleashed on the world, starring Chris Pratt. Steven Spielberg is going to serve in an executive producing role, and we will find out in about eight months how this stacks up. So that's going to wrap up tonight's chat about Jurassic Park. I'd like to hear your thoughts on The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3. Send me your emails, hitmpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet me at HowIsThisMovie. You can like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash HowIsThisMovie. And as always, if you're enjoying the content that we're doing, please leave us a five star review in iTunes. So for myself, Dana Buckler, I want to thank you so much for listening. From the earliest days of cinema, movie dinosaurs have thrilled and terrified audiences with their ferocity, if not always their believability. But since The Lost World dazzled viewers in 1925, moviegoers have become increasingly sophisticated, expecting ever greater levels of realism. Expecting reality. Jurassic Park set out to give us that reality, to let us meet face to face the awesome creatures whose legacy fills our grand halls of exhibition. For 165 million years, dinosaurs ruled our world, the most dominant species of all time. Even their naked bones to off us. Standing amongst them, our imagination is fired, and in awe, we wonder how they were as living creatures. The sheer power of their limbs, the rough texture of their skin, the grace of their gait, how they sounded, how they hunted, even how they ate. This is the task that the makers of Jurassic Park set themselves to bring these grand creatures back to life with absolute credibility. Steven Spielberg wished to show us not movie monsters, but the animals themselves as they might have been. Immense and beautiful living beings that were once lords of the earth. Through an extraordinary combination of paleontology, artistry, and breakthrough technology, he did just that.